If you are a Christian, you will rightly say that Jesus died for your sins. The very gospel is the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, died for us and rose again. Everyone who believes in him are forgiven of their sins and they receive eternal life. In my previous podcasts, I spoke extensively on grace. The Bible teaches us that grace is God's unmerited favor. The foundation of our relationship with God is grace. We can expect good things from God, including forgiveness and eternal life, because of grace. We believe Jesus died so our sins could be forgiven. Forgiveness means totally wiped out and forgotten. They're not coming back. God's not holding our sins against us. In fact, in Hebrews 10 verse 17, God promises that he will no longer remember our sins or lawless deeds. He says in Isaiah chapter 1 that although our sins were as dark red like scarlet, because of his forgiveness we are white as snow. This is all because Jesus bore our sins in his body when he suffered on the cross. But did you know that Jesus did more for us than that? I'm sure you've heard preachers say something like, if Jesus only died for our sins so we could be forgiven, that would have been enough. But in reality, it was not enough. You see, the Jews, under the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, had their sins forgiven. In Leviticus 5, verse 13, God said that when they offer up sacrifices in place of themselves, he will forgive their sins. But you see, under that old system, when a person walked away from the altar after offering up a sacrifice, they were the same person they were before they offered the sacrifice. God has forgiven them, yes, but they still had a very big problem on the inside. What Jesus did for us is greater than what a bull or goat could ever do. He didn't just die for our sins. His suffering, starting on the night he was betrayed, provides for us much, much more. Eternal life doesn't mean you are a forgiven sinner. Eternal life means you are no longer a sinner. You are born again. You have been transformed into a completely new person. But how is that possible? And what actually happens when a person believes in Jesus Christ? What do they receive along with forgiveness of sins when they receive Jesus? To answer these questions, we need to recognize that Jesus accomplished more for us through his suffering than forgiveness of sins. And we're going to see what the Bible actually says about this. I'm Adam Castellino, and this is the Gospel Talker Podcast. The word we use to describe what Jesus did is called atonement. He atoned for our sins. His suffering was payment so that we can be forgiven by God. And it is true, Jesus died for our sins. But the way in which he atoned for our sins was more than just a payment for what we've done. He actually accomplished much more through his suffering so that we can be much more than just forgiven sinners. From the moment he was betrayed by Judas, he underwent a series of sufferings that purchased for us eternal life. Some Christians call what Jesus suffered the passion, Christ's passion, and that didn't start on the cross. He went through a series or stages of painful ordeals that culminated in his crucifixion. Now, some might argue that his suffering began before Judas' betrayal, such as his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's true, we see in Scripture he was moved emotionally in the Garden as he considered the weight of what he was about to endure. But in terms of the atonement, Jesus is suffering in our place the suffering, the punishment that we deserved, all of that was set off by Judas's traitorous kiss. If I'm being honest, I admit one podcast cannot fully explore everything Jesus endured for us. 
all that Jesus paid for us. I can't go over all of it in, in a, what, an hour? Nor am I saying we're going to look at everything Jesus did for us on the cross. I don't know if we can fully plumb the depths of all that Jesus did for us in a podcast or just one message. I think through all eternity, we're going to continue to sing the praises of the one who died for us and rose again. And we're going to learn and discover just how tremendous and glorious it was that Jesus would suffer and die in our place. If we take a step back and just think about what it meant for Jesus to become a man, what we call the incarnation, this, the implications of this miracle go far beyond what I think we often think of. God the Son, who was one with the Father and the Spirit, became a human being for the very purpose of experiencing what we experience as human beings. So that began with his conception and birth. He endured abuse and mistreatment throughout his entire earthly life. He was tempted by Satan. He lost loved ones. He was lied about and slandered. He was insulted by his own hometown. In fact, his own neighbors from Nazareth once tried to throw him off a cliff. So we see from the Gospels throughout Jesus' entire earthly existence as a man was filled with suffering of some kind. But it was suffering that we also endure while we're on the earth. Why did Jesus do this? It was so that he could become our perfect high priest, our perfect mediator, our perfect... High priest means it's more than just some man in a robe who initiates religious ceremonies, okay? A priest is someone who reconciles you to God. And in many ways, he is God to you, if you really understand what that means. We don't have Aaron or just a mortal man as our high priest. We have God himself, God the Son, who became our high priest. And it was necessary for him to understand what we're going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he could offer mercy and compassion because he lived through it. So a high priest is someone who brings God to us and brings us to God. He is someone that makes sure there's no hostility between us and God. And what's so amazing about our high priest, our mediator, is that he himself is God. So it's not some third party interjecting themselves between us and God. No, it is God himself, the Son of God, who reconciles us with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So there's no separation between you and God because of Jesus. This is why it's so important that he became a man and lived through everything we lived through. He never sinned, we know that, but he knows what it's like to go through the pain and suffering and just general uh, misery, frustration that we experience every day on this earth. He's not some God up there in the clouds, you know, just surrounded with ease and, and beauty and is completely unconnected with what we go through. No, Jesus lived it and he lived it long before you ever lived it because none of us were alive back then. He did that for a reason. And it was so that he knows just what you are going through right now. And then he can sympathize and show you compassion, not cruelty, not anger, but love. When you are struggling with shame because you stumbled, don't allow Satan to condemn you. And there will be preachers and Christians out there who will make you feel just a little inch tall because you keep stumbling in the same sin over and over again. But Jesus is not up in heaven scowling at you because you messed up. The very reason, as I said, that he was born into this world was to experience what we experience. He knows our weaknesses, and he can show us compassion and care, not condemnation or anger or judgment. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He never sinned, but he knows what you are feeling. He knows the struggles you face. And he's not upset with you. He's not condemning you. In fact, he is the one who's going to pick you up when you fall. All the condemning preachers who want to stomp you down when you struggle, you know, guess what? They're not going to be around to pick up the pieces of your broken life. They can't even provide you with the power to resist temptation. Despite the fact that they yell at you and badger you because of your weakness. But that is not what Jesus does. 
He calls us to turn away from sin, yes. He doesn't want us to sin. We can only be free from sin, though, because Jesus has saved us and is right now on our side. That is the reason he came in the first place. When Jesus was lied about, when he was insulted, when people attacked him, literally, all of that was part of his experiencing what we experience so he can help us. He didn't endure a single moment of pain for himself. He did it all so he could associate with us human beings and that so he could provide the salvation we need but don't deserve. For the sake of this episode, I'm going to focus on four things Jesus purchased for us through his passion. Jesus endured the pain of torture, mockery, false accusations, beatings, and crucifixion. Not for his own sake, not to show the world how to obey God, but for our sake. He suffered and died so we could have eternal life. Now, one of the most uh, important passages that describes Jesus' suffering isn't in the New Testament. It is, as you might already know, Isaiah chapter 53. This passage is so descriptive of what Christ went through that if you didn't know any better, you'd think it came right out of the gospel books. And even to this day, God uses this passage to open the eyes of many Jewish people to the good news that Jesus is their Messiah. Because what it describes is undeniably about what Jesus went through, even though Isaiah prophesied it hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Now, if you've never read the passage before and you want to study it on your own, the actual passage begins in chapter 52, verse 13, through the entirety of Isaiah 53. But for today, I'm going to focus on verses 1 through 6 of 53. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6 begins, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. As we can see, the passage makes it very clear that Jesus' sufferings were for us. Everything he experienced, every pain, every blow were on our behalf. So that today we can be forgiven, saved, and healed. But let's focus on verse 5. Isaiah describes four ways in which Jesus suffered and what that suffering provided on our behalf. And I'm going to focus on that verse. But first, let's go through a, a short summary of what Jesus suffered. All the Gospels provide details, including John chapter 18 and 19, but I'm going to summarize it for the sake of our episode. Now, according to the scriptures... We know that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his closest companions, in fact, one of his own disciples. On that night, he was arrested, and all the other disciples fled in fear. So he was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. That same night, he was brought before the rulers of the Jewish people, where he was falsely accused and condemned of blasphemy. The elders condemned him to death, though they were the ones breaking the Jewish law. They proceeded to blindfold him and beat him with their hands and fists, mocking him as they did. In this bruised and bloodied state, he was taken to the Roman governor, Pilate. The Jewish rulers changed their accusation from blasphemy to sedition or rebellion. You see, Pilate wouldn't have cared that Jesus blasphemed a god he didn't worship. So the elders had to come up with an accusation that would have been a crime under Roman law. The Jewish rulers claimed Jesus was going to challenge Rome because he said he was a king. Rome was very keen on killing anyone 
who would challenge its power, especially Jews. But Pilate interrogated Jesus and found no cause to condemn him to death. So Pilate wanted to release Jesus and offered to set him free on Passover. But the elders stirred up a crowd outside who demanded Jesus to be crucified. Jesus said nothing in his defense as a lamb that is silent before it is sacrificed. So first Pilate ordered Jesus to be scourged. Roman scourging was horrifically brutal. Roman soldiers used whips with nine strands tipped with bone or metal, and they whipped the victim's back within an inch of their life. Jesus' entire back would have been torn open without a piece of skin left, and those whips would have curled around his body, tearing at his arms, neck, legs, face. The Roman soldiers then dressed him in a robe and put a circle of thorns around his head like a crown. And they mocked him, since they hated Jews, and put a staff in his hand. Then they beat him with that staff, driving those thorns into his scalp and face. Pilate then showed the Jews what he did to Jesus, perhaps hoping that would have been enough. But the crowd continued to demand that he be crucified. So Pilate washed his hands in a bowl, claiming he was free of the guilt and condemned Jesus to crucifixion. Jesus was required to carry his cross to the place of execution. That would have been just the cross beam of what we know as the cross. But he couldn't even carry that heavy beam. So the Romans forced another man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it for him. Jesus was taken outside the city, along the road to Jerusalem. There he was nailed to the cross between two common criminals. Crucifixion, as you probably know, was an agonizingly long form of death. He hung on that tree, experiencing intense pain as he slowly asphyxiated. A victim of crucifixion would have eventually died because they would have grown so weak that they were unable to push themselves up to breathe. According to the scriptures, darkness fell on the earth for several hours during Jesus' suffering. And he cried out at that time, Eli, Eli, lama sakbathani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is generally accepted that this was the moment where Jesus endured not just physical torment, but the fire wrath of God against sinful humanity. After this, the light was restored, and Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. With a loud voice he shouted, It is finished. Then he gave up his life. Now this is just a brief overview of what Jesus suffered. I wanted to go through it so we could better understand Isaiah 53 verse 5. As I said before, Christians often say Jesus died for their sins. But that suffering did more than that. To find out, let's look at the first line of verse 5. Isaiah 53 verse 5 begins like this, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Depending on the translation of your Bible, it might say wounded or another word. But the original Hebrew can also be translated pierced. This, of course, brings to mind Jesus' literal crucifixion. The Roman soldiers drove nails into his hands and feet to hold him to the cross. And this imagery is also used in Psalm 22, verse 16, They pierced my hands and feet, which is another prophecy about Jesus' suffering. Now Isaiah writes, He was punished in this way for our transgressions. So what does that mean? You're probably familiar with the word transgression or transgress if you read the Bible. It's a common word that pops up depending on your translation, and it simply means a crime. When you transgress a law, it just means you break it. So this passage tells us that Jesus was pierced, was punished, for our law-breaking. This is, of course, what most Christians think when they say Jesus died for them, that he was punished for their wrongdoing. Now, if you list all the wrong things you've ever said, thought, or did in your entire life, how long would that list be? Probably a lot longer than you're willing to admit. Paul calls this the handwriting of charges against us in Colossians 2.14. This list would be longer than Santa's naughty or nice list, right? There are far too many transgressions that you've committed 
that you could actually count, let alone figure out a way to pay for throughout your life. No amount of jail time can pay for everything you've done wrong. You see, the world doesn't really want to think about that. They think, well, if no one saw what I did, no one knows what I think, then it doesn't really matter. Okay, but God sees everything. And God knows everything you've done. And you can't go to jail to pay for this. No amount of animals and sacrifices or good works can pay for it. The only proper punishment is death, both physical and spiritual. Because you've sinned both spiritually and physically, believe it or not. Now, my last episode about sacrifice, I explained because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, humans had to offer up what we call sacrifices for their sins. Before they could expect God to hear their prayers or help them or show them any kind of favor, something had to pay for their guilt. Something had to die. And Hebrews 9.22 tells us it required the shedding of blood, of death. But lambs, goats, and bulls cannot really wash away your sin. In the Old Testament, that was only a temporary means of putting God's wrath on pause. There needs to be a full, permanent payment for what we've done. And really, that's only your blood. But instead of punishing you for every wrong you've committed, God punished Jesus instead. Jesus willingly took the piercing you deserved for all the wrongs you've committed. And don't hang up on that word piercing. In Isaiah, that's meant to evoke the crucifixion, but all of his suffering was a part of that payment. And because of Jesus, that long list of all your sins, guess what? If you believe in him and you put your trust in him, that list has been wiped out. The paper is blank. You are totally forgiven of your sins. God is no longer holding them over your head. In fact, in his eyes, you are only good and pure. All because of Jesus. Now that's the gospel. That's what we believe if we call ourselves Christians. And that's what we receive when we believe in Jesus. But why would God do this? Why would Jesus... God the Son willingly endure such punishment for undeserving people like us, sinners. You know, most of us didn't care about God's law. If you're listening to this and you're a believer, you probably admit before you received Christ, you didn't care about right or wrong. Or at least there are certain areas that you didn't care about because you like doing him. We didn't know God. We didn't have love for God. Yet while we were still sinners, Jesus went to the cross for us. All because God so loves us. God's love for us is so powerful, so amazing, that he will be willing to give up his own son for us. Jesus loves us so much that he gladly went to the cross. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus suffered. What joy was that? That you and me would be forgiven forever. So most Christians will understand that first line of Isaiah 53, verse 5. In fact, that is what most evangelists preach when they preach the gospel. Jesus died for your sins so you could be forgiven when you believe in him. And that's true. Amen. Hallelujah. But that is only the beginning of what Christ provided for us through his suffering. Now hang with me while I explain this because we might dip into some deeper spiritual waters. But if you're a believer in Christ, this is very valuable to understand. You see, if only your sins were forgiven, you'd be happy, but you'd still be the same spiritually dead person you were before. Your sins were wiped out, but you'd still be, as we say, spiritually dead. Okay, that means you'd still be in darkness. Your heart would still be hardened by sin and shame. Something else needs to happen if you are to be fully free from the curse of sin and death. All right? Now, this is important to understand uh, about why we sin. Human beings inherited our sinful state. The Bible says we were born into sin. It's a concept people call original sin. All right? This is really important. You are not a sinner because you sinned. 
You sinned because you were a sinner. It's a big difference. Dogs don't bark to become dogs, right? They're dogs, and because they're dogs, they bark. You see that? Your nature, when you were first born, was fallen. And because you were fallen, you committed sins. So that list of sins I mentioned, that existed because you were a sinner. Now, we weren't created at the beginning as sinners. But because Adam and Eve sinned, they were cursed. They received this curse of guilt upon them. And every other human being was born into that curse. Now, that might not sound fair, but that's the reality, my friend. And all your sins are evidence that you were a sinner. Paul says this in Romans 5, verses 12 and verse 18. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. You see, we were born sinners because of Adam, our ancestor. Because he sinned, sin and death spread to everyone who descended from him. That's the doctrine of original sin, and that's right there in the Bible. That's why from the moment you were, you were born, you were struggling with sin all your life. Adam sinned and received this curse. We sometimes call it the curse of sin and death. That's the consequences of Adam's sin. You could also call it, you know, the guilty judgment pronounced on humanity. Okay, but it is a spiritual condition that you cannot fix yourself. We're all born spiritually dead. That's another way of saying it. We were born sinners. On the inside, we had this spiritual curse. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, if you want to be technical, our bodies were alive, but our inner person, the spirit, was dead. Now, not dead in the sense of like a dead skunk on the side of the road. It was still active. Spiritual death means you're alienated from the thing that gives you life, which is God. We were hostile to God. We were living in rebellion against him. It was more than the fact we did bad things. We did bad things because we were bad on the inside. This is what we call the curse of sin and death. Because of Adam, we were born cursed, unable to resist temptation, and because of that, we didn't know God. So the Bible uses different terms to describe this state. Okay, you can think of it as your status, sin, the sinful nature, a sinful state, the curse, spiritually dead. Okay, all those terms generally describe who you were on the inside. So if your sins were completely forgiven, what about what's going on on the inside? How does that change? Well, here's something that's useful to know. You may notice that the Bible sometimes uses the plural word sins, but other times it uses the singular, sin. Well, what's going on here? The word can be a verb, meaning you sin or are sinning, you know, an action. But it could also be a noun, meaning the bad things you do or have done. So sometimes the, the noun version of the word is plural, meaning all the bad things you've done. So when the Bible talks about our sins, it's referring to that list we've talked about. But sometimes it'll just say sin. It's referring to your state or status of sinfulness. Not just one or two bad things, but the reality that on the inside you were spiritually dead and had no power to resist temptation. In Romans 8, Paul calls this the law of sin and death, the, a principle at work within you that kept you away from God, kept you unable to obey God's word, made you hostile to God, made you open to Satan's influence, gave you a hardened heart, and eventually would produce in you eternal death. Okay, So it's much bigger than I did some bad things I need forgiveness of. It was I am a dead, spiritually dead person in need of a major transformation to be saved. Like I said, in other parts of the Bible, it's called the curse, sometimes spiritual death, different terms like that. So the real problem needed to be fixed, not just those lists of sins that have condemned you, but the fact that you were dead on the inside and alienated from God. So Jesus' suffering also provided that solution. 
the solution to the fact that you were a sinner, that you had this status or state of being spiritually dead on the inside. And the next line in Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this, He was crushed for our iniquities. Now you can interpret that to mean the same thing of the earlier passage, he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And you could say, well, that means Jesus died for our sins. And I wouldn't argue with that, of course. But the word iniquity is very interesting. The word can also mean guilt caused by sin. And I believe this suggests not just the bad things you've done, but that state of being a sinner. The fact that we were born sin and have this sin, this curse within us. The actual root word in Hebrew for iniquity means to be twisted or to bend. And so this evokes the idea of being wrong on the inside. Because you were born a sinner, you were twisted or bent in your soul. That guilt, that curse that was pronounced on your ancestor Adam was yours the moment you were born. So this verse in Isaiah, this line in verse 5, I believe is referring to that inner state of iniquity, not just the bad things we've done, but the state of being a sinner. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, plural. He died for our sin, that state, that inner state of being a sinner. Like I said, what the Bible often refers to as this curse. The guilt, the judgment pronounced over us that resulted in spiritual death. This is something interesting that Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So did you catch that? Paul doesn't write, Jesus died for our sins. He says, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, if you've read this verse before, uh, you probably wonder what that meant. Jesus didn't just die in our place. He became a curse. Now, what curse could that be? As we've been saying, the curse of sin and death. Now, Paul uses the term here, curse of the law, but it's the same curse. Because we were cursed as a result of Adam's disobedience, we are now under this judgment of God. We have no power within ourselves to change our uh, situation. So Jesus had to come and take that curse on himself. Because that curse demands death. Because we are sinners and we constantly sin, we ultimately are doomed to death. So that's a curse. It's the result of our own sinfulness, going back to Adam. But Jesus took that curse. He didn't just bear it, but he became a curse. Because the law says cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus became this cursed object, okay? He suffered the curse that we deserve to free us from that curse. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so did you catch that? Paul writes, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. That sounds very different than saying Jesus died for our sins, which he did. But Paul says here, a part of that atonement was that Jesus condemned sin, singular, in the flesh. We know Jesus was punished as payment for our sins, all those vile things we've ever done or will do. But he was also crushed for our iniquity, for our sinful state, that curse. He took on that curse, suffering not just physical death, but at the spiritual condition we endure because we are born sinners. The curse means we are spiritually dead now and will face God's eternal punishment at the final judgment. That is what we often call hell or the lake of fire. That eternal punishment that we are all doomed to because we are sinners. But Jesus became the object of God's wrath on the cross, soaking up the curse, that sin, that death, in our place. Remember when darkness fell on the earth and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know what was happening on the cross at that moment, 
because the eyewitnesses to the account said the whole world became as dark as night. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46 say this, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sakpathani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' words tell us he felt forsaken by God the Father. He was actually quoting, as we said, Psalm 22, which, like Isaiah 53, talks about Jesus, or the future Messiah's suffering. But why did Jesus quote this verse? Why did he say that God forsook him? In all his earthly life, Jesus called the first person of the Trinity, Father. Yet on the cross, in that moment, he calls him God. And we can only conclude Jesus was suffering something that alienated him from God the Father. He did not enjoy the fellowship or favor of the Father, but instead his fiery wrath and judgment. The Bible teaches us that eternal death will involve intense punishment away from the presence of the Lord. Those who go to hell will not enjoy the love or favor of God, but for all eternity they will suffer his fiery wrath. But Jesus suffered that wrath for us during those dark hours. He endured the Father's anger against our sin, so we never have to fear going to hell. He suffered in that state for about three hours, and afterwards he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, revealing to us that he did not remain in that alienated state at his death. Now, Isaiah 53 Verse 5 says he was crushed. Now, when we look at the stages of Jesus' suffering, where was he crushed? Now, the Hebrew word can also be translated beat or bruised. But the term crushed seems appropriate given what he endured in those hours of darkness on the cross. He was crushed by the weight of our sin and guilt, that curse he took on, our curse he took into himself. And he became the object of God's wrath. And in doing so, he condemned sin in his flesh. What does it mean that Jesus condemned sin? That's so amazing. It means he destroyed the power that sin has over our lives. Sin brings a curse. Sin is like a slave master who, who beats us over the head and drags us down with temptation. And sin in its fully formed fruit is death. But now all of that has been removed from us. We are no longer spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, alienated from God, or doomed for hell. God is no longer angry at those who believe in Jesus. We are no longer dead sinners. Instead, all that curse has been taken off of us because it was put on Jesus. We are recipients of a new life, born from above by the Holy Spirit. Sin is no longer your master if you believe in Jesus. You're not only forgiven for all the wrong things you've done, but the curse of sin and death has been removed from you. You may look the same on the outside, but on the inside, you have a new living spirit that is in communion with God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, when you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are totally wiped out. But that's not the only thing. The person you are on the inside, the real you, has been transformed from a dead, cursed sinner into a blessed, born-again, forgiven, righteous saint. That is eternal life. That is justification, salvation, all the words we use. That's what happens. Notice here, Paul says, all things have become new. Not just a few things, not just some parts of your life, but all things are new. Now, God promised this transformation in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, we know that all your sins are washed away, and the curse of sin and death is removed. Now, because the curse has been lifted, you qualify to receive a new heart and new spirit. 
God's Spirit came and gave you a new spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells within that spirit. And you receive a new heart. Your heart is your earthly consciousness, where we often talk about our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires. You once had a heart of stone that was hostile to God. That's why it was stony, hard. But when you came to Jesus, you received a tender heart, a heart that is receptive to God's love, his word, his leading, his grace. All of this is what we call the new birth. This is what we call salvation or receiving eternal life. Eternal life began the moment you believed in Jesus and will continue forever. Now, I hope you're beginning to see how God did more for you through Jesus, his sufferings, than forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness was necessary. That is key. You had charges against you that you could not erase yourself. But once those charges were satisfied through Jesus' atonement, you now need to become a new person who is no longer alienated or hostile to God and who will no longer live for sinfulness. That required a change of your internal hardware, so to speak. You need a new living spirit and a new heart that is receptive to God's voice. So Jesus made that change possible because he not only paid for your sins, but took upon himself your cursed state of sinfulness and guilt and destroyed it through his suffering. Pretty amazing, right? But that's not all Jesus did for you. Isn't that amazing? You know, John in chapter 1 of his gospel says, From God's fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So how full is God? Too full for us to measure, right? He is so full of God, you know, full of life, full of love, full of joy, that he keeps pouring into us grace upon grace upon grace. Even Paul said God can do exceedingly above and beyond all that we can ask or think. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' atoning death, which provided for us eternal life, accomplished more than we realize. Let's look at the next line of Isaiah 53 verse 5. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. Okay, so what does that mean? This means that Jesus was chastened or chastised or punished so that you can be well. Well-being is how the New American Standard puts it. It comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Now, this is a very significant word, a very, very important word in Hebrew. You might have been told that the word shalom means peace, and it does. But this peace is not what we think of in our culture when we say peace. These days, when most people think of peace, they think of, you know, simply peace of mind. You know, kind of calm or contented feeling. They really focus on emotion. They think of, you know, resting on a beach soothed by the gentle rocking of the ocean waves. You know, that's peace, just calm and quiet and relaxing. Yeah, that's nice, but that's not what shalom means. In Vine's Dictionary, he provides some insight. Shalom means peace, completeness, welfare, health. Shalom is a very important term in the Old Testament and has maintained its place in modern Hebrew. Shalom is a harmonious state of the soul and mind that encourages the development of the faculties and powers. The state of being at ease is experienced both externally and internally. Closely associated to the above is the meaning welfare, specifically personal welfare or health. So I hope you begin to see how all-encompassing this concept of shalom is. It doesn't just mean a sense of well-being, like a state of mind, but a total body and spirit wholeness from God. When Isaiah wrote that the future Messiah would be punished for our shalom, his original audience would have known exactly what he meant. He is saying that Jesus suffered so that we can experience wholeness in all of our life. Because we were sinners, we could not expect good things from God. We couldn't have been so arrogant as to expect shalom from God when we deserved only punishment. 
So Jesus took the punishment that was rightfully ours in exchange for us to receive shalom, peace from God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus our Lord. Paul would have used the Greek word for peace here, of course, but he, being a Jew, was absolutely referring to shalom, peace with God. Shalom. That is a very important gospel truth. Now, in my past episodes, I was very uh, hard on Christians who suggest suffering comes from God. Those that say pain and sorrow and problems come from God for our benefit. How does that idea square with the fact that Jesus suffered to bring us shalom? No Jew would think shalom only means a spiritual peace, a kind of figurative peace. Oh yes, my life is falling apart. I know everything that's happening is a complete disaster of my life, but I have peace in my heart. What kind of peace? Mental peace? Emotional peace? What about physical wholeness or material well-being? Those are included in shalom. Now, you may not like that, but you can't change the meaning of a word to fit your specific point of view. The Bible is the Bible. Some Christians actually think their earthly life will just be a disaster and that the only shalom or blessings they look forward to is in eternity. But let's go back to Isaiah 53, verse 5. He says, The chastening for our well-being, shalom, was put upon Jesus. Isaiah does not say this was only shalom in some afterlife. He says, our shalom, our well-being. It's not specified to anything, so we must conclude it applies to our entire life. Jews know shalom means well-being in every area of their life. Otherwise, it is not shalom. Yes, that concept does include a spiritual peace, a peace within your heart. The kind of peace we enjoy knowing that God has forgiven us and that we will live with him forever. But it also includes help, restoration, wholeness in our lives right now. Now, let me be clear, this doesn't mean you don't have shalom if you're going through something hard right now. We don't find peace in our earthly circumstances, which always go up and down. What this does mean is that Jesus suffered so he could give us our, his shalom. Peace and wholeness in every area of our lives. So if at this moment you're not experiencing wholeness in some part of your life, that doesn't mean God has failed you. doesn't mean you don't have enough faith or you did something wrong. But it does mean you can go to God in prayer, ask him for help, and be confident he will provide his shalom peace. We have to believe that God cares about our earthly life. Don't believe anyone who says otherwise. Now, will you have problems in this fallen world? Of course. Will your life in eternity be much better? Absolutely. But God promised to be your help right now in all circumstances. And Isaiah says Jesus suffered so you can have shalom peace in your life. That means you can expect God to provide that wholeness, that well-being, to your family, finances, friendships, health, and more. Now, there, there are going to be some people who disagree with me and say I'm spewing some kind of crass prosperity message, but I'm not. I will say, I have said, you will go through struggles in this life, and your best life, your perfect life will happen in eternity. But I'm just looking at what the Bible says. God never said he will punish a forgiven child of God to teach him a lesson. It's not in there. God does not bring suffering to a person in covenant relationship with him through Jesus. That would be a contradiction of what we just read in Isaiah. Does he allow suffering? Yes. But God has a higher plan than just providing momentary comfort. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and those thoughts are for us are always good. His intentions are to bring good out of evil. So, let's think about this for a minute. This is pretty important, and this might not be how we often think about it, but this is an important aspect of all of this. So, I've said before, and I say now, that God doesn't bring problems into our life. He is not the source of our problems, okay? But He does allow them. 
Sovereignty means that God is at work even in the midst of the worst circumstances we could think of. But his plans for his children are always good. So our response to struggles and problems are to look to Christ for our deliverance. Now, how he brings about that help, in what way, in what time, is a part of his will. But he said he will never abandon us in the midst of difficulty. He's always going to provide his grace. And that brings comfort. That means peace. That means deliverance. And our responsibility, if I could use that word, is to keep looking to him to receive what we need. One of the reasons God allows suffering into our life is really, really cool. It is about spoiling and bringing to nothing the plans of the enemy. A lot of people like to talk about Job to compare themselves to him when they go through suffering. And we see in Job, Satan was the one who wanted to destroy Job's life, not God. But why did God allow Satan to do all these terrible things to Job? Because God had a greater plan that was about humiliating Satan through the life of Job. See, God is not the one making you suffer. He allows problems so that you have an opportunity to turn to him, receive his grace and help, and that is a demonstration, a testimony of God's amazing, abounding grace in the life of a human being that is a testimony to the world and even to the supernatural powers of darkness in this world. This is a part of God's plan for our lives that we don't think about because, for one thing, we're too focused on ourselves. And for another thing, we have our own built-up theology that disrespects God and has a very low opinion of what we're going on in our life. But the Bible makes it very clear that part of God's plan for our life is to humiliate Satan and to expose him as you know, the big loser that he is. God always has an amazing plan for you if you believe in Jesus Christ, even during times of suffering. We don't always know what that plan is, but we do know God produces good from evil. We can depend and expect comfort and grace when we are in times of need, according to 2 Corinthians 1.4 and Hebrews 4.16. Now, where do I get this idea that God humiliates Satan when he works in our lives? Paul says something to this effect in Ephesians 3 verse 10. God's goal, God's intent is now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. This is not a verse a lot of people think about or study, but I encourage you to think about it for a little bit. God is at work in our lives to show his wisdom and power to fallen angels. You see, Satan and his demons want you sick, miserable, fearful, full of anxiety, full of worry, dragged down by sin and guilt and shame. But every time God answers our prayers, every time he provides for us, he is demonstrating his amazing love and grace in our area of need, and then Satan is humiliated. For that very reason, we can trust that God will provide shalom to every area of our lives. Because Jesus paid for it through his suffering. To think that God will not provide wholeness or well-being is to disgrace the suffering that Jesus endured I'm not saying this to condemn any Christian, especially those who are going through hardship, but I want to inspire you to grab hold of all that Jesus has for you even now. Because, listen, as I've said, when we go through hardship, it is an opportunity for us to experience more of God in our life. So instead of saying, well, God allowed this, so I'm just going to suffer through it, we say, I'm going to turn to God for help. God is the God of all comfort. I could go to the throne of grace to receive grace and help in time of need. That is a promise that God will always help us in our suffering. Now, if you didn't like that last part, you are definitely not going to like what I'm about to say next. Let's look at the final line in Isaiah 53 verse 5. And by his scourging, we are healed. So the first two lines kind of run parallel and are similar. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That speaks of the punishment Jesus suffered to pay for our sins and to remove the curse of sin from us. And the second two lines are companions as well. The chastening for our well-being was laid upon him. That speaks of Jesus suffering to provide us shalom, wholeness, completeness. And then the final passage by his scourging or stripes, we are healed. You see how those two run together. The first two you could say is spiritual salvation. The second two is uh, earthly salvation as well as spiritual. 
So the spiritual comes first because that's most important. And then Isaiah, like a topping on the cake, says, and we could count on material, physical benefits, shalom, healing because of what Jesus went through. Now, what is scourging? As we've said, I mean, I already talked about this, of course. Your translation might say stripes. That's the common word, okay? Um, more accurately, some will say scourging. That speaks of what Pilate ordered the Roman soldiers to do to Jesus. When he was whipped, it was not a few little red lines on his back that, you know, a Catholic church might have on his crucifix. As I explained, Romans used the cat of nine tails that was so horrifically brutal, the scourging would have left nothing of Jesus' back. It would have meant all his skin would have been torn apart, gone, and his back would have been fully exposed, ripped to shreds, as well as the rest of the front of his body would have received part of that blows as well. That's not a pretty picture to think about, and uh, I know that's overwhelming to some of us, but we need to know why Jesus endured this for us. Why did Pilate order this to happen to Jesus? Remember, Pilate did not want Jesus punished at all. He was constantly trying to find excuses to get rid of him, saying, I find nothing wrong with this man. And then later on, he says, well, I let someone go at Passover. Let me let go of Jesus. But every time the people were coming up with reasons to get rid of Jesus, saying, no, he said he's going to be a king. That, that defies Rome. You have to get rid of him. But when Pilate said, well, I'll let him free for Passover, they said, no, let it, Barabbas go instead, this uh, murderer and criminal who was literally a rebel. Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. He didn't want to crucify him. So why did he order something in addition to crucifixion? You see, the people asked Jesus to be crucified, which is a form of death. The scourging wasn't necessarily a part of that punishment. Okay, the people were crucified without being scourged. Okay, they were going to die just by the virtue of the crucifixion. But Pilate ordered that Jesus suffer this horrifically intense punishment because it was God's plan. We say that Jesus went to the cross for our sins. We say he suffered and died so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. So why was he scourged? Isaiah doesn't mince words about Jesus' scourging. He plainly states that by his scourging, we are healed. It is a great crime today that there are many churches who do not teach on healing. Now, they'll come up with clever arguments to convince you that God doesn't heal anymore or might not heal or we shouldn't ask for healing. They will slander verses like this unknowingly by saying healing is a part of the prosperity teaching, the health and wealth teaching. And they will claim that Jesus and the apostles healed uh, so many sick back then simply as a sign to confirm the gospel. And some will say we don't need that anymore because we have the whole Bible written. Last time I checked, people still needed healing. People still fall sick and suffer tremendously from physical problems. And by the way, the early church did have a written Bible. It was called the Hebrew Scriptures, which they studied to learn about Jesus just as much as we study those same scriptures today in addition to the New Testament. That's not to diminish the New Testament, but it's to disprove the fact that they didn't have written scriptures. Healings weren't happening to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. Healings took place to show God's great love for those in need. If we believe that God shall supply all our needs, according to Scripture, one of our needs often is healing. That's a need, isn't it? Isaiah tells us specifically that Jesus was scourged for our healing. You can't just put that aside. Again, he's not qualifying the healing. Oh, by his stripes, we are healed of sorrow, or we're healed of emotional or mental problems. No, it says healing, plain and simple. That covers all kinds of healing that we need. The simplicity of his words includes everything. Sadly, far too many English translations, I believe, are dishonest when they render verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 53. They deliberately translate certain Hebrew words, sorrows and grief, when the original Hebrew actually means pains and sicknesses. 
The Christian Standard Bible translates them properly. This is, these are verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turn away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And we know this is the right rendering of these passages because Matthew quotes them like that in Matthew 8, 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. If you read those verses properly, along with verse 5, you could come to the conclusion that part of the atonement includes healing. Sickness, after all, is part of the curse. It is a symptom, so to speak, of that future death. So if Jesus defeated the curse, then we must believe it includes all parts of the curse. Not just eternal death, not just lack or suffering in this life, but also sickness. Now, I truly don't understand why there are Christians who are opposed to the promise of healing. I'm not saying you have to believe every person out there who claims to be a healing preacher or every person that uh, does things that are questionable. I'm not saying that every person will be healed instantly when we pray for them. What I'm saying is that Jesus was torn open so we can be healed. He suffered in ways we can barely imagine, in ways that would make some of us weep or faint so that we can receive forgiveness, eternal life, and healing. Why is that so controversial to say? Why do some Christians come up with so many arguments to undermine what the Bible says? To reject this is to reject Jesus' suffering, and I refuse to do that. James commands the church to pray for the sick so they can be healed. James 5.16 God does the healing, not us. We don't need to fear praying for someone because they might not be healed. Oh no, they might not be healed. I'll look bad. It has nothing to do with you. God is the one who answers our prayers, isn't he? We don't heal anyone. God does. Our job is to be convinced of the promises he's made in his word. Our faith is built on those promises. And this is one of them. Jesus was scourged brutally for our healing. God said that. I didn't. When we are sick, when we are suffering, we can ask God for healing, confident he's going to do it. But what about those who aren't healed? What about those who died of their illness or have suffered long-term disabilities? See, a lot of people use that argument once again to undermine Scripture. I don't understand that. Why would you look for reasons to undermine what the Bible says? But let's talk about that for a moment. It can be easy to doubt God's promises of healing when we see people who are sick and suffering. In the same way, we can doubt God's promises of help when we see Christians suffering in other ways. Don't we put our faith in God, not in what our eyes see? Didn't Paul say we walk by faith, not by sight? So why are we deciding whether or not God heals based on circumstances instead of simply looking to the Bible, seeing what it says, and believing that? And if circumstances don't match up with it, we keep looking to the Word of God and trusting that God will answer and fulfill His promises. Because the Bible says, He who promised it is also able to perform. Now, I can't answer why a Christian was sick and didn't recover, even if they prayed for healing. There could be several reasons why that happened. But I will say it's not because God didn't want them healed, or there was some sort of failure on the part of the person or anything like that. Okay, what I can say is that we believe God's word. We don't trust in our circumstances. We believe what the Bible says, that God so loved us, he sent his son to save us. And that everyone who's sick, everyone who's struggling, God loves them and God wants to heal them. And that's what we pray. And that's what we trust, that God is a good God who's going to do good things for his people. Not because wishful thinking, not because I want that, but because that's what God promised. I'm not going to dismiss or diminish what Christians go through especially those who have suffered serious illness. I'm not writing that off. But the word of God does not change. When we are sick, we must remind ourselves of this promise. 
by Jesus' stripes, by the scourging that tore open his body, we are healed. When you are sick, think about Jesus. Don't focus on your circumstances. Don't worry about what other people may or may not believe. Yes, go to a doctor. Yes, take medicine. Do those wise, sensible things. But remember, your source of hope is not in a doctor or in a medicine, but it's in Christ. In all circumstances, we look to Jesus. What is he saying about our circumstances? What did he do for you? What does his word say? Trust that your good and loving God will provide the healing you need. When you pray for others, remember what the word says. By Jesus' scourging, we are healed. Believe that. Believe that God loves that person so much, he's going to answer your prayers. Listen, it's not our responsibility to heal the sick. Just as much as it's not our responsibility to save the lost. You can't forgive someone of their sins and give them eternal life, right? Only God can. But we can still pray for someone that they might be saved. And we can still share with them the gospel, hoping they'll believe. In the same way, you cannot heal a sickness. You cannot erase a disease from someone's body. But God can. We look to him continually, every day, to answer this promise, as well as all the others. Honestly, that's really just a brief look at what Jesus provided for us through his suffering. Isaiah 53, 5 says he made payment for our sins to be forgiven. He took on the curse of sin so we can receive a new life. He endured the punishment we needed for shalom wholeness, and by his scourging, we are healed. Like I said, this is just an overview. There's so much more we could say. The breadth and significance of the atonement is probably too much for us to fully comprehend. But looking at these truths strengthens our faith. It reminds us of who we are because of Jesus. And it empowers us to continually look to him for everything we need and we will receive it. The Gospel Talker podcast is written and produced by Adam Casolino. Visit us online at gospeltalker.substack.com.